welcome to A Day in the Life of a Business Analyst. I'm Sandeep Mysore. In this series, we explore the lives of business analysts, or BAs for short, from across a number of different industries and specializations. We will hear about the tools, techniques, and methodologies that BAs use in their day-to-day work life and get a glimpse into what it is to be a business analyst. Hey everyone, I am so happy to have uh, Kelvin Honk here with us today. So Kelvin is a graduate of the BIS program at UNSW Business School and currently he's a product designer at Atlassian. And uh, in this podcast, we will learn about uh, Kelvin's role in his team, what he does on a day-to-day basis, and he'll also take us through some of the intricacies of the design process and the tools and techniques that he uses in his day-to-day work. So Kelvin, welcome to the show. And uh, yeah, it would be great to have uh, a, a, a you know, more accurate introduction of what uh, what you do and your, your, your journey to your current role after you graduated from university. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sandy. Um, yeah, so I'm Kelvin, as Sandeep introduced. So I am an alumni from the BIS program. Uh, I started after graduating as a product owner at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. So I was helping work with um, some of the digital products that they had. Uh, during that process, I think I had a sudden realization that uh, based on talking to designers uh, and talking to like the teams I've worked with, that design seemed like a much more interesting space that I wanted to try and dive into. So I applied to Atlassian, fortunately got the job, um, and now I'm a product designer at Atlassian, focusing around sign-up and the login experience for all of our cloud products. Um, so just having a single sign-up experience for that. Great. So, uh, Kelvin, tell us a bit more about what got you interested in design. Uh, so, what what piqued your curiosity and, and what nudged you in that direction? Yeah. Um, I think initially I dabbled during kind of university. I, I looked into a lot of different tools. Um, I think even just talking to a few people that are in the industry, in the UX and UI design industry, I initially had an understanding thinking that uh, UI design is all about just making really slick and nice um, designs that are useful like websites, mobile apps. Um, and then with that mentality, I started kind of playing around with kind of creating new designs for problems I was trying to solve or uh, just even doing redesigns of some existing products just because I thought I could just use this as like creative outlet. Um, and I think after I've just started playing around with those tools and getting ahead into the process, I started learning more around like, oh, this might be something I might have a passion for. And so once I, once I did apply for the role and, and fortunately getting the role, I had a realization then that design is not just that. Uh, I can definitely talk about that in a bit more detail later, but um, yeah, the, the whole idea of just trying to solve problems for our users and trying to make sure that the experience is always going to be the most ideal. Um, me personally, going through some products myself or like even just mobile apps and noticing little details and saying, oh, this is a good experience. It's just stuff that gets me going. So that's, that's how I managed to get to where I am today. 
Nice. So, uh, well, going back to uh, the time when you interviewed for the job uh, and the whole process of getting into Atlassian, was there anything that uh, that you still remember? Something about about the recruitment process? What you were tested on uh, for your potential as uh, as a designer? Yeah. So they they test on a few different things. I think they're how. I like to think of it is initially when you when you start applying, you will have, for instance, your resume, um, maybe even a cover letter if you wanted to add one. But the main thing that they look for is your portfolio. And so with that in mind, I worked on like a few designs in the past and I just tried to upload it onto like a portfolio website just to say like, this is the work that I did. This is kind of the frame of mind I had when I was working on the project. Um, and that's that's kind of the more important part that they're looking for. And so once they go through your resume and do a high level look through your portfolio, they get a better understanding of around oh, what's this person's expertise, how do they think, uh, how do they solve problems. And if, for instance, that person has potential, then they'll bring you through to the next interview. And that, that follows more of like a traditional interview format sure. where they're just trying to understand why you applied for a role, um, like kind of how do you align to the values of the organization um, and then also they'll give you a design case study where they might give you a case to solve and you just try to explain your frame of mind when you're trying to come up with a come up with a solution and that that's just more around it's not necessarily how flashy or how nice your designs look like it's more around the thought process and the design process that you've adopted and that's kind of where is probably the most important concept. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm, I'm sure we will cover a lot of uh, a lot of uh, in the in the uh, coming minutes. So Kelvin, uh, you know, w- would be great to uh, hear about uh, your current role. Um, your you know how your team is structured. What's the what is it like working uh, in your in your team? So if you could give us a sense of the team culture, how your team is structured. And how you guys uh, collaborate with other stakeholders within Atlassian, that would be uh, quite useful. Yeah. I think with just this whole this whole COVID situation, it's definitely changed recently. Yeah. I can give you a quick uh, uh, brief run through on what it was like before and what it's like now, just to, I guess, better prepare everyone for an understanding of like a remote environment. Um, so if... You just for those who are listening, if you're aware of how Agile Scrum teams work, we're similar to that. But for those that don't necessarily understand how that works, uh, usually you have these small cross-disciplinary teams, which are called the Scrum teams. And these teams kind of work together on maybe one set feature or maybe one product that exists. And uh, whoever, depending on the focus of the team if the focus is much more back-end heavy versus like front-end features then the team composition might change uh in my case because our team works on both front-end and back-end we have a whole heap of developers that are full stack so they kind of understand both uh that front-end and back-end skills we have one designer which is myself um one engineering manager and one product manager and so the engineering manager, the product manager, and myself, we form something called a triad, which is a, a, coin, a term coined in Atlassian as kind of the, the leadership team of that 
scrum team. And so we're there to kind of help make decisions around how the team's going to work on certain projects, priorities. Uh, and we always obviously have tension because the different kind of, uh, the different pillars or like of design, engineering and product management will have different kind of ideas of what they want. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of to create a balance on making sure products firstly are delivered on time. They're technically feasible and secure, and they also have a good user experience. And so um, that's kind of how it works. So me on a day-to-day basis, uh, I still am quite hands-on. So I think a lot of the times I've been working with the developers, especially with more of the front-end features around creating design specs, but also trying to really understand how to create uh, design-based as a solution from a problem, a problem that we're trying to solve. Um, so just even some examples of like my day to day, it, it changes all the time. Uh, I wouldn't say any day is really the same. Uh, but it can range from, for instance, doing like a lot of initial research, trying to understand a problem via like preliminary research, just doing a lot of reading, trying to see what exists out there. Um, it can go then to like trying to sketch or wireframe some, kind of high-level solutions to concept tests. We bring those into sparring. Sparring, which is another term that's coined in that last thing, for design critique. So when you come up with your variations of designs, you get that reviewed with other designers around the world just to make sure it's kind of stress-tested and Mm -hmm. you're not having a biased view. And then that can then also range into like creating prototypes, getting into user research, usability testing with actual users to kind of then validate mm-hmm. your idea. And then from that, sometimes it's just like creating high-level specs to hand over so that the devs know exactly what to build. And then after that, just maybe even looking into like data and just trying to understand your, the impact that your solution might have made or even just going and looking up and understanding how your users are interacting with your product at the moment. So... Um, that, that was a lot. That's obviously not even like close to exactly everything I do. Um, but that's just some, some examples of how in design it's not just necessary making spiffy design. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's, a, that's a very important point for uh, students who are interested in getting into design to be across. And it's just not what you see uh, eventually that materializes in, in the form of an app or a website. But it's the the whole process that that is behind its creation that is also a huge part of the design process, and, and we will uh, certainly talk about that next. But you know, I, I was actually uh, quite curious when you mentioned uh, Kelvin that there are de- tensions in the triad between the engineering priorities, the product priorities, and the design priorities. Could you give us an example of uh, you know what a typical tension looks like? <laughs> uh, I can I can probably even give an example of a recent project that we were working on. Um, one, not not to dive into too much details because it is kind of confidential. But uh, there was this piece of work that we were working on where we were introducing kind of a different flow for users as like a security to solve a security gap. And so, creating this feature, uh, for instance. From a design point of view, I was thinking we should really be optimizing this for the user, making sure since we're introducing a flow that 
didn't exist already were actually creating a new obstacle. And so I wanted to make sure that flow is as optimized as possible. Um, and for that, I've thought about like, how can we streamline it? How can we make sure that we don't create as many uh, blockers or any inputs that the user needs to provide, just trying to minimize as much of that as possible. Um, and then engineering obviously has a different point of view when it comes to like security. They want to make sure that we're creating, for instance, maybe a new page because in that way, um, can't get users to, or we can't get, for instance, hackers or um, anyone with malicious intent to kind of run scripts against certain pages. And for instance, I wanted one page, they wanted two to make sure that first page is much more secure um, and that you have to go through. Uh, and then product management obviously comes in and says, we, we want to deliver this by this quarter, for instance. And they're saying, uh, in that case, based off the understanding around how many users are actually going to be impacted by this feature, mm-hmm. um, it might not be as necessary to focus so much on getting a really, really secure uh, solution or, and also a very, very user-optimized solution as well because the effort that's required to do that is not worth like the cost and time is not worth it. Um, and so that's where this tension comes into play. Like we're all trying to do our own things and we're all trying to come in with our opinion and our piece of the story. And so with that tension, we come to kind of like a conclusion on something which is like the best of all worlds. It might not be the most optimized experience. It might not be the most secure experience and it might not be delivered like really, really early and on time, but kind of strike a balance. And that's where we get into kind of like what we call like the ideal place. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the balance between all three opinions and making sure that we are not heavily weighted towards one or the other. Right. So there's so many yeah. uh, so many factors that affect the design process. This is the oh, case yeah. that I'm getting. Uh, let, let's move on to that topic then, Kelvin. So could you talk to us about how, uh, you know, requirements get translated into design and, and the whole design process, uh, all the factors that affect, uh, like some of the things that you were describing, multiple stakeholder priority, different priorities and so on. So could you take us through uh, the journey of, you know, translating requirements to design? Um, unfortunately, as I would love to give you a framework to, to kind of run you through and say, like, this is the, the, the way to do the design process. Unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. Um, how I like to think of it is breaking down the design process into kind of like four phases. And um, this is quite similar to, like, the software development lifecycle, um, but it's kind of more around how we work in design. And so to, to give you it from like a high level, and this is not by any means like the be or end or, there are other frameworks people use as well, but this is something based off my understanding um, in design. The first one's around trying to understand the problem and really trying to make sure you get that grasp around what that problem is. Uh, the second one is like the second phase is coming up with the solution. And so when you're coming up with a solution, you can go through many different uh, variations, etc. cetera. Uh, validating the solution and making sure that it, the third, sorry, the third one is validating the solution and making sure that the thing that you're coming up with is the most ideal. And then lastly, it's around measuring impact. So once you deliver something, how can you understand uh, whether and learn from what you've delivered whether it's actually solving the right problem. And so back to answering the question around how requirements translate to design, it depends on the scope of the problem. Mm -hmm. So um, 
for instance, just for based on my work so far, there's been really like three types of work and not to say that this is the only type of work that designers do. Uh, depending on like your seniority or depending on your experience, you'll have like sure. much more, like a much wider range of the problems you're trying to solve. And so uh, when, for instance, it's something like, we know this problem exists, we've done uh, like maybe product management or engineering or like based on talking to users, we already understand that this is a problem and then you get brought in, brought in and they've already got like a solution in mind then in that case, the requirements are already there. They're like, oh, we want to make sure like um, X is done, Y is done, this solution must hit like, this endpoint, or we need to make sure we're hitting these like security kind of thresholds. And in that case, uh, it's much more simple. Like you're just translating those requirements and creating a design solution that fits all of those. And so that's where there's much more clarity. Um, However, there's also some projects where it's around, let's say, a problem's being raised. There's, for instance, um, a group of users are, are complaining about the same problem. They're saying, like, oh, when I'm going through this flow, I've noticed that this breaks. Or when mm-hmm. I'm doing this, and you, we can collect those into themes. So there's this idea that this problem's being raised, but we aren't even 100% sure what the actual root cause problem is. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, the requirements are less clear and it's kind of on you as a designer to really understand the problem and make the requirements off the back of that as well. And so in those cases, uh, the requirements are not clear and kind of like a business analyst, we, we do go in and we try to understand like what do the users really want. And so there's a lot of techniques that you can do to do that. Um, and then the last one, which is, I would say is much more of like the harder bodies of work is around envisioning. And so envisioning is where there's no necessary immediate issue, uh, but we're looking towards the future. And so this is stuff like big, really, really big, chunky problems that there is like it will take months or maybe even years to try to come up with a solution for it. Um, or for instance, you're saying we want to be at the forefront in terms of this process to make sure we're using the best technologies. And in that in that case, that's where it's even more of a step back mm-hmm. and in that sometimes you don't necessarily even translate your requirements into solution uh, into a design yet it might even take like two quarters three quarters maybe one year to just really try to understand what the root problem is mm-hmm. really trying to understand like why are we doing this and then from that um, that requires much more like kind of research mm-hmm. much more, like much more of like the initial um, understanding to really, really get that design requirements, which can come really, really down the track. And from that, like depending on how big the project is, it can then get chunked into those smaller projects, which mm-hmm. might have, for instance, a solution in mind, or might have, for instance, a problem being raised, but there's no solution. And so these envisioning pieces are, are huge and um, they're just much more early in the process and then you chunk it down and really try to get understanding of how to translate those. Yeah. Right. So, I, I, yeah, that, that, that was uh, very useful, Kevin. So, you, you described to us broadly the phases through which the design process, uh, you know, runs through. So, something similar to the SDLC uh, for people familiar with that. And also the three different contexts in which uh, requirements 
uh, getting translated to design happens, right? So uh, I, I think it will be useful to also uh, delve a little deeper into these three contexts. I think they're very interesting. Could you give us an example for you know these three buckets, um, yeah. just, just to give give our listeners a sense of what it you know, the, the scale of the problems that we're dealing with. So when it comes to envisioning, for instance. So what kind of problems are these, uh, you know, which require a lot of research, a lot of thinking uh, before even thinking about a solution and, and also the other two contexts that you described to us? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I can I can talk more on maybe some of like the public or like released features. Sure. Um, the first one on, let's say, the solutions being suggested, this one, for instance, uh, one of the projects I was working on and I was brought in was the... The problem is being quite clear. It's just these screens that we have, we're using an old kind of design pattern. Mm-hmm. And so the, the screens look very outdated compared to all these new screens that are being built. So it's part of like the same flow. It just, the experience feels really off because you're going from really clean design to suddenly like an older version, which looks very kind of retro 1990s. Yeah, yeah. Which, obviously haven't hasn't been touched for a while and then going back into this nice process and so uh they wanted to get updates around those those screens and making sure they're up to date with like the new design libraries that we've we've Mm. kind of created and so that one for instance is much more of a solution being suggested like we know the problem exists because like users going through the flow uh seeing a discrepancy in kind of like the experience um, and then so in that case, like the requirements are making sure it's up to date in terms of like the design patterns, um, making sure the experience isn't compromised by any ways. Like people are really familiar with it after they've gone through it a few times and we wanted to make sure it's still reflected in these new designs. And so that one, for instance, the requirements are already set in stone. Um, Just making the user experience consistent. So in, in that case, it's it's really clear around what you are to do as a designer. And in that case, like you, you obviously jump into kind of like some of the documentation that exists around the problem and why we're doing this in the first place to really understand the problem to begin with. But in that case, it's usually very clear from either an engineering or product management standpoint that this is kind of what we want. And in, in that case, it's it's much easier to then go like, all right, let's get these requirements and let's make a new design from that. Um, So the second one, which is around like, let's say problems raised, but there's no solution yet. Uh, One example of an existing problem that we do have is for instance, uh, a lot of users are struggling with having to, like they manage multiple accounts um, in, in like the Atlassian ecosystem. And so, what they really are trying to understand is like, how can I seamlessly switch between like one account to another without always having to log out and log back in? And so in that, in that case, there's been a lot of people going like, oh, I'm managing a lot of different accounts and this experience really sucks. I'm trying to switch between the two. And so the problem's kind of been raised from that. So we're looking through a lot of tickets that are raised to Alassian around like the, like customers giving feedback. Um, and we look into that to then understand, oh, like we, we're seeing these, this theme that exists here. There's no, there's no necessary solution around like how are we going to exactly solve it, mm-hmm. but uh, we were bubble, like there's a lot of things bubbling up to really get a problem 
kind of with a bit more visibility. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, how that works is then a lot of the times either the product manager or the designer starts interviewing these customers to really, really understand what that root problem is. Mm-hmm. It is still like a, it's like a sizable problem, but it's not like a huge, huge thing. So it's like we, we understand like the problems to this scope and we can from there try to figure out based on our interviews, what are the requirements the users want. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, it's, it's a bit less clear compared to that initial example on whether, when the solution has been suggested, but um, there, there is some sort of like linear kind of way you can track and go downwards uh, based on like trying to understand those requirements and then translating those requirements. And so that's where, uh, as a designer, you need to go in, understand the problem, and then you have to try to extract those requirements based mm-hmm. on like what people are saying. Now, now the last one on envisioning is uh, that one's that, that's a whole different beast in itself. And so, one of the examples I was working on is just looking at what the the future of sign up and login is. Mm-hmm. And so, there's no exact problem because the sign up and login experience in itself, like based on our uh, research, people haven't really had too many complaints. They're like, yeah, it works, and that that's what that matters. Um, but at the same time, we can't just sit on kind of like a golden frame and say like, yeah, our work is done. We, we still need to kind of push forward and really understand like what is the future of mm-hmm. authentication? Like what, what technologies can we uh, use? Um, and then so we then start thinking around like, well, is passwords even going to be a thing in the future? And so um, that stuff, there's no, no immediate problem. And so it's really, really hard to try to get the requirements out because you're just making a lot of hypotheses. You're like, I'm guessing that the future is going to be like this and we're going to come up with like a few concepts to really test and see whether that idea sticks. Um, and yeah, so like there's no, there's no immediate requirements that, that exist. And, um, in that case, that's where it gets much more kind of hairy, much more confusing and much more cloudy. Um, but sometimes those, those projects are the ones that are like really, really fun to really try to understand. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> total, total greenfield, total uncertainty, total ambiguity. Who doesn't yeah. love working in that space, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, Kevin, thank you so much. I think that was very useful to get a sense of what what those contexts really mean. Um, and, and in your descriptions, you were referring to quite a few, you know, techniques that you use uh, to get the job done. Uh, interviews, uh, root cause analysis, and so on. Uh, could you uh, talk to us a bit about the design techniques that you employ as you are trying to solve these problems, think about solutions, and so on? Um, and also, uh, uh, what, on what basis do you choose what techniques to use, for instance? So if you, if you could talk talk to us a bit about that, I think it will be very useful. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that's a really good question. And so how... I like to think of it as, as, as you were mentioning before, it's like a toolkit. You have kind of all these tools or techniques that um, you can use and that you can kind of use to really make sure you're getting your work moving forward. And so just t- touching back on like the different phases, as I was mentioning before, there are a few techniques that kind of sit within these different phases. So like let's say understanding the problem being phase one, there's a lot of techniques that exist there, such as um, trying to understand what the user's journey is. And so you can do user journey mapping, for instance. Um, you can also try to understand what who your users are. And so this is like personas. Um, the, as you were mentioning before, root cause analysis, 
uh, five whys. Like there's, there's all these techniques to really, really understand the problem and making sure um, you're solving the right problem. You're not making an assumption, not making an assumption that uh, you're solving something else. And so that's one example. Uh, for instance, when you're coming up with a solution, there's a lot around like brainstorming because you try to get a lot of different people in the room to crowdsource ideas, etc. Um, there's something called Crazy Eight, which is something we use for ideation. And the idea is uh, you have eight minutes, you have a piece of paper that's split into eight different sections, um, and you have to sketch an idea every minute. And so it's this idea of like, you don't get too babied to a, like you're not babying a solution. You, you try to see as many as you can. And usually a lot of people struggle at like four. Um, they, then you have to start really thinking outside the box to kind of hit like five, six, seven, and eight. So that's like one example. Um, and then one of the, the really big ones I do a lot is contemporary analysis. And so what this means is um, it's very similar to this idea of competitor analysis where you're going to like the, the people that are doing things really well and trying to understand like how, how have they come up to this solution? What are they exactly doing to solve this set problem? Um, and for example, like the, the companies we always go to is just looking at like Google, Microsoft, Apple, like they're, they're obviously like very, very well known for like their experiences. Um, and so they're kind of, we do a lot of these analyses online to really get um, an understanding and a reference point to work with. Right, so that's kind of where we can start then coming up with solutions around like, oh, if Apple is doing this, then we can probably make a variation of that. Or it's like maybe Apple, Microsoft, and Google are all doing different things, then we can go, oh, maybe we can make one that's the best of all worlds, something along the lines of that. Uh, then for phase three, which is like, for instance, validating the solution, um, there are a few techniques we use. Uh, first one is sparring, as I was mentioning, I think, earlier in this conversation around how you come up with a lot of these variations during the, the design process or, like, the ideation phase. And so what you want to do is you want to bring this up to other designers to make so sure you're not coming up with, like, a very biased view because, obviously, you I have one you join us again kind of point of view. And so you're bringing a lot of different people to take a look at what you've done to say, like, does this work? Does this work? Have you considered this? Mm. And so that's a really, really powerful technique that design designers use in I think a lot of different organizations to really to get make sure that their ideas validated, tested, um, hardened. Um, and then from the back of that, once you've for instance decided, all right, let's let's roll with this, then you go through usability testing, which is then uh, getting a lot of uh, or creating research plans, um, recruiting customers and users to actually interview them and then talk through your concept and think how are they going to use it? Does this flow make sense to you? Etc. And then lastly, for like the whole measuring impact phase, uh, it's really looking into like analytics. Uh, so maybe if some of your flows have been instrumented with data, then we can kind of track how many users are going through this, how many people are dropping off at certain certain points. And so you can use that to kind of help drive a lot of design decisions for like the next iteration. Mm-hmm. Great. I think so the main ones that might be really, really useful, for instance, are like more around like personas and contemporary analysis, like personas to, to dive into that in a bit more detail. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people will forget it's like, who are your actual users? 
And right. so what you do as part of kind of mapping your personas is really getting example use, user bases. Or let's say, for instance, um, for Uber, right, they could have a whole varying level of personas because you can have someone who's like an 18-year-old uh, young male who's living alone versus maybe a 34-year-old woman who who is a wife and has two kids, etc. And so it's really a good empathy exercise because you're trying to think about what those people are feeling, um, what are they doing from like a day-to-day basis, and you're creating these kind of example users, and then you're making sure that your ideas are tested and true and would work for all of these different types of users. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's, that's where the value of personas come into play as well. Okay, so when, when, you're, when you're creating personas, the idea is not to create separate solutions for each class of users, but to create some sort of a common denominator solution which can work for every type of user. Is, is that the thinking behind personas? Yeah, because yeah, different users would have like different requirements. Mm-hmm. And so um, otherwise, like for instance, if the, the requirements are really completely different, then that's where you start looking into it and thinking like who are our users in that case. Mm-hmm. Let's say if we're targeting more for like tech savvy um, kids because it's like a mobile app. So let's say the requirements of maybe a 65 or 70 year old who doesn't have a smartphone and her requirements is that she still wants to somehow like call someone up to get uh, a car coming to her and take her from point A to point mm-hmm. B. Then you can say, oh, the requirements on that might be shifted away from what we think our product offering is. And so they it's good to know that they could be a potential user, but maybe they're not um, your primary user. And in that case, you don't necessarily optimize for them. You're optimizing more for the people that are more familiar with mobile phones and that they're right. uh, willing to use like a mobile app to, to call or to request. Like mm. a in that case. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Kevin. Now, uh, diving a little deeper into uh, uh, prototyping, right? So, when you know, once you've done all your research, uh, then you're probably bringing these ideas to life by creating prototypes and again um, testing these prototypes with your users. So, what role does prototypes play in the design process? And if you could also talk to us a bit about. Um, different types of prototyping techniques and some of the best practices around creating prototypes uh, that will, I think that will sort of close the loop. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think the best way to probably explain this is we can, we can use an example, right? So yeah. uh, let's say for instance, as a, as whoever you are, you are trying to create maybe like a podcast subscription mm-hmm. app, for example. Um, and how, how I like to think of it, there's kind of different levels of fidelity that you can use for prototypes and that will then determine what kind of tools to use, um, what kind of techniques to use. And so the first one, uh, how I like to think of it is like the first three, but so I'm, I'll cover four, which is like firstly sketches and wireframes. Um, second one is more like clickable prototypes. We have code and then we have like physical. And so the first three are really more around kind of like the interaction and concept testing. Um, and if the physical last one physical, which might not be as tech heavy, it could be more used to solve like the concept. But I'll, I'll, I'll dive into each. Um, so the first one with sketches and wireframes, this one's more around, you know, trying to understand 
or you're trying to test a concept to begin with. And so what you tend to use is you might go, uh, I might use pen and paper to like sketch out kind of like these different UIs. And so it's really, really obviously stripped back. There's no detail. You might use just lines, boxes, and just say like, you bring bring it to a user and say, hey, um, I'm thinking of doing this. Can you let me know what you think of like these flows or like this concept to begin with? And so it's not necessarily about the detail. It's more around... Uh, trying to understand like a user's frame of mind when they might be using something similar to that. And so tools and tools that you can use is uh, pen and paper, obviously, which everyone can have. Uh, there's these, there's Balsamic, if you've ever heard of it. It's a, it's a tool where um, a lot of the kind of boxes and arrows are done for you. So it's something you can use on your computer, but it's done very kind of, cartoony and sketchy so it's the idea that it's not a final UI design mm-hmm. um, and then lastly there's this one called Marvel Pop I think it's the mobile app where you can draw your sketches on a piece of paper you can take photos and then you can kind of stitch them together to make like a like a quick prototype okay. and so a lot of this stuff is very very low cost mm-hmm. um, and it's really good in the earliest stages of the design process where you're just trying to understand whether this concept's going to land, whether it's going to stick for your users. Um, the next one is on clickable prototypes. And so the idea for a clickable prototype is you probably have your UI sorted out and might have a bit more detail, like a bit of body copy, might have like colors, might have pictures, that kind of stuff. And so this is more to really understand around the flow and the interaction testing and so this is maybe when you've tested your concept and you're like all right i think it's worth pursuing this now how does this how would this actually look like for a user um and a lot of this stuff is uh it's again the concept of like boxes and arrows and all these different things but then you're you're putting a bit more thought into the ui design um around how this might actually look and so this is more like of a medium cost but uh, some tools that you can use is, for instance, InVision, um, Adobe XD, which I think if you're a UNSW student, you might have access to the Adobe suite already. Um, the one I personally use is Stigma, which is something we uh, use at Atlassian, but it's also something you can try out for yourself. It's free, I think, for uh, single licenses. Um, there's Sketch, which uh, I think that was a major player back in the days, and then Proto.io. And there's like a whole heap of different tools that really focus more around creating clickable prototypes, which you can present to a user and it's more trying to understand, is this button placed in the right area or um, does this flow make sense or where does a user go if they were to try to do X? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the second level of fidelity. Now, the third one is code. And so a lot of times people use code, which you might think it, it's a lot of effort to kind of create something just for the sake of testing. Um, again, this is a really, really high fidelity variant, but you're, depending on your fidelity, you're trying to test different things. And so for code, you're really trying to understand like the micro interactions, the look and feel. Like there's like some things that you, you need, you still do need to test sometimes, uh, which you can't achieve with clickable prototypes. And that might be, for instance, when you're hovering over a button, the hover state will change. Like the button will change color when you hover or maybe let's say you're looking at a table and you want to sort and filter the table, sometimes a clickable prototype might not be powerful enough for you to then do smart filtering and all that kind of stuff to really imitate what the product might look like. 
And so let's say for a podcast app, if you wanted to filter based on like um, content that is purely kind of motivational or or maybe it's a non-fiction or like a podcast that, that, that might be just more focused on cars, for example, um, using code, then you can actually have a lot of these powerful engines to make it work as if it was a final product. And so you might not necessarily need to do so much on like the back end and making sure like the whole product is done and ready. It could be just a lot of code for testing the front end to really to really get uh, look and feel of like those micro interactions for users. And so the, the cost obviously is going to be higher because there's a lot of effort that's involved in writing um, good code. And so like uh, some things you can use is like Bootstrap, uh, and if you know how to run and build on Android, iOS, um, and any tech stacks that you're familiar with, as long as you can get something up and running, and that's that's. And then the last one, which I was talking about, how it's a bit more separated, is is right. So um, essentially, with physical prototypes, it's whatever you can get your hands on. Sometimes it might not even you don't even need to do anything to do with a computer. You just really want to concept test something. So for instance, I say for a podcast subscription app. Um, what you could do is you could grab some DVDs and you burn content onto it and then you just loan them to people and say, like, what are, what are your thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just, just really, really kind of scrappy, uh, very startup-y, like, yeah. testing um, where you don't need to show them a, an app. You don't need to show them something on their phone to, to kind of play through. You're really trying to test this concept of whether people would subscribe to podcasts for, like, a fee. And so you you would actually just physically get CDs and just rent them um, for like a set fee. And if that lands, then you know, oh, this is probably going to be a viable business model. If it doesn't land, then you've already tested and said, all right, it's maybe not something that you want to necessarily do. And so physical is really, really around like the concept testing. It's not so about those micro interactions that I was mentioning before. Um, It's just trying to understand whether your concept will land, whether it will stick. And so that's where people get sometimes really, really creative. Yeah. I think I think one example I like to always use is for Airbnb. Um, when they were initially doing the prototypes, one of the ideas that they did was they actually got a camera and went to different places to take really, really nice photos of like the accommodation because the problem they were running into is that people weren't renting. Like they weren't going into and renting places because the photos look very shabby. It's like someone on their, uh, I don't know, the Nokia and taking a really pixelated photos and just just by physically going to places, taking photos, and then um, using that, people were much more like accepting and going, oh, this place actually looks much nicer than I thought. I'll go rent it. And so that's kind of like an idea of people going outside, thinking outside the box around how can we solve or how can we understand this problem without necessarily diving straight into like tools and all that right. kind of stuff. Right. Just, just to give us uh, the early feedback on the concept as you were saying. So it, it seems to me like you choose uh, your level of fidelity based on what you want to learn from your users uh, and what uh, at what level of the product journey you're at. So based on based on this understanding you, you choose uh, an appropriate fidelity level to test whatever it is that you want to learn from your users. If I've yeah. understood what you've uh, described correctly, Kevin, and, and that was a very nice way uh, in which you uh, described to us how uh, how prototypes are created and 
some of the decisions that are taken uh, so underneath the creating these prototypes. Thank um, you for listening. You know, what, I think it's time to discuss some common misconceptions um, when it comes to design, right? So you did allude to a few in the conversation. Uh, in fact, early on, you, you you were talking to us about how initially you had this misconception that uh, design means creating very slick front end, uh, you know, specs, right? So that that's not really the case. It, it's it's a far more complicated complex process uh, there's a lot of things that goes on in the in, in the background there's a lot of process that's followed so could you also tell us a bit about you know what are the other common misconceptions that people might have um, you know coming into this uh, design field um, I think the the ones that I'll probably mention now are ones that I personally had so I feel like I can, I can, can talk about it in a bit more detail um, yeah, like that, that first one, as you were mentioning, that I previously alluded to around how design is making this clean UI. Um, I think that's that's kind of what I initially was really interested in. Um, and it, I thought it was just making like nice animations and like um, making sure like the transitions were really cool and the colors popped and all these graphics were really nice. And uh, realizing that that might be the case to solve certain problems, but it's not necessarily the case to solve all the problems. And, and that's where this design process really dives into is just making sure you understand the problem and you come up with a solution that's tailored towards that. Sometimes, for instance, animations and all that transition stuff might not be rendered correctly if someone has low data, for instance. Um, and, and if that's, if that's the case, then you kind of miss the mark around like, um, we sometimes good UI is something that's not noticeable. It's just like, it, it just makes sense. And so, um, to get good UI is by really understanding the problem. So, um, that, that's one example that I personally learned, I guess, when I started diving and dabbling into the industry. Um, one of the, one of the big ones I, I have talked on to a lot, and I think a lot of people do ask me here and there is around like, this, this misconception on I need to have studied design to become a designer. And so, for instance, me, I'm like uh, probably one of those examples where I didn't study design. Like, it's, I studied information systems, which we might have touched very briefly on some UI principles, but it's nothing compared to like uh, people who have degrees in human computer interaction or people who have degrees in like design computing. And not to say, not to say it's like those degrees are useless, but they they really set you up for that pathway. But at the same time, um, nowadays there's a lot of people that are doing career switches where they, they start off as like, uh, I don't know, a financial analyst and they go, hey, I don't think this is right for me. I, I've looked into kind of like UX design, UI design on the side, and I really want to give that a go. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have necessarily a background, but if they have the passion and interest, they start learning that on the side. Um, and so you, you can, you def, there is definitely value in studying design, but at the same time, like it's not to say like that's the obstacle. If you haven't studied design, you become a designer. I haven't studied design. I've kind of dabbled on the side, but I still managed to get to the industry. And, and I think most of the time, what you do learn uh, in university is theory. And, and sometimes when you go into like a more practical environment, you have a realization that things might not necessarily work as how you them. Um, and so I think the idea is just being flexible, uh, having an open mind and going into the design industry and 
really trying to learn as much as possible. That's that's really the best way to succeed, um, especially if you're starting out. Um, and I think I think the third one I really like to talk about is like this idea of like you need to know how to draw to become a designer. Um, again, I'm an example. I can't draw, <laughs> but uh, I might be able to sketch something that looks really ugly. But as long as it gets the idea across, I think that's that's the most important part, right? So nowadays with like UI and all that kind of stuff, there's tools that that do it for you. You don't need to draw, but but this idea for designers. You don't necessarily need to draw in like the most nicest and most perfect way possible. It's just you need to kind of create a story or you can visually create a story around explaining a concept. And so a lot of the times, if you talk to a designer, they might go onto a whiteboard and just start sketching things to like show like a flow or like how a user's feeling. But a lot of the times, if you break that down, it's just boxes, circles, triangles, arrows. Like they don't, they don't make like nice shading. <laughs> So the the people are anatomically correct and yeah. the facial structures are all good. Like you don't you don't need to worry about that. So Usually like, stick figures, eh? Yeah, yeah. You use stick figures. You just use boxes and arrows. You sometimes maybe draw like little bits of detail, but like, um, yeah, you don't. You definitely do not need to know how to draw. Like, keep drawing. Knowing how to draw does help. But it's not like a necessity, which I think a lot of people do have a misconception going like, I can't become a designer because I can't draw. Right, right. Thanks, thanks, Kevin. Uh, I think that's that's really useful, and it, it kind of sets the stage for the last thread of our discussion. Um, some of your tips on landing a job in design. We did, we, uh, you did talk about your own personal journey early on, and how you came about uh, the the design uh, job that you're in right now. And you also spoke about some of the common misconceptions in design. And I'm sure that will um, inform uh, students who want to get into a design job on you know what um you know what 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 design is really about and what uh, what some of the common misconceptions that people have about design i think that 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 will also really help uh, students uh, to get students thinking about their own career choices is there anything else that you would like to add is there anything else that you would like to share with students who want to you know uh, embark on a journey that will um, you know take them into the design industry um, I think the, the first thing is as long as you kind of have an interest and passion, like it's that, that would be not to say like that's enough to get you landing into a job, but, uh, that's one of the really, really core important things to, to kind of have when you're trying to land in the industry. And so as long as you have an interest and you'll start dabbling into kind of looking into like different patterns or like how how things are represented and so as i was mentioning before when you're when you're trying to land a job in design what they look for is portfolio and so if you for instance have an interest then what you might do is you might just jump onto a design tool like figma on the side and you can kind of think of a problem that you wish like there was this app that solved this and then as long as you can kind of uh, try to solve it, really try to understand it and then create kind of a, maybe a prototype or a mock-up of designs. You can add that to your portfolio and then as long as you can kind of dictate around your design, your thinking when you're going through the process, um, that will really, really help with making a strong portfolio. And so, um, for instance, when I, when I started, like I had not 
like my portfolio initially was a lot of side things that I did just for, for fun, right? Like I, I worked on maybe an app for like a hackathon, which is nothing to do with like real, real experience that you have. Um, it's just I did it because I, I enjoyed it. Or I think um, another example is I went into like Facebook and I just went, hey, if we could like simplify this into like a really, really clean design well with my mentality back then mm-hmm. um like a clean design that that is just has the most important information to you up front without having so much noise um and then i came up with something like that which then i kind of talked through when i was going through when i added it to my portfolio and i went to the portfolio interview um i talked through like why why i decided to do this and mm-hmm. what my train of thought is and what Users, I thought would really get benefits from that, and so um, yeah, you know, this is it. Definitely isn't one of those things where you're like, oh, I need experience to really get into get into design. It's just more like the experience that you create can be obtained yourself. Like, there's always opportunities everywhere. It's just as long as you have the drive to kind of do um, your own side gigs or like your own kind of sure. in your spare time to to kind of solve problems. Um, you can add that to your portfolio, and I think at that point, it's they're just really trying to understand your your train of thought, your how you solve problems. And as long as you make that really clear in your portfolio, um, then that that really helps you get across the line. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think other other things some some people do do talk about like jumping onto some of the boot design boot camps that exist. Mm-hmm. I, I first haven't gone through it, so I can't talk to a, a bit more deep into too much detail, but I do know a few people that um, never really studied design and they jumped into a boot camp to, to learn a lot of this theory in a more practical sense. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times after they complete these boot camps, they get, they get poached by companies that say like, we need a UX designer to do this. We need a designer to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's also really, uh, like that could be a, another opportunity for you to take if, if you are more into learning in a classroom setting, but also being able to like uh, practically apply that kind of companies. And so it just, it just, I guess it depends on like firstly how much time you have, how much mm. budget you have to learn, or like sometimes it's just like um, what what you want to get out of it. And in in that case you can kind of decide and find opportunities that exist, create a portfolio and then bring that into your interviews to, to kind of strong arm to say like, Hey, I have an interest in design. This is kind of my design process, my way of thinking. Um, and then the, I'm pretty sure like the interviewees, I mean, sorry, the interviewers will understand that and that might help you land a job that you've always been thinking about. Great. Well, Kelvin, it was a pleasure having you. Uh, thank you so much for giving us uh, tips on landing a job in the design industry and also sharing your knowledge about uh, the design process, the design techniques and the process of prototyping as well. So, yeah, it was a pleasure having you, pleasure chatting with you and I look forward to catching up with you again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sandy. So that is all that we have for you today. Thank you for listening and we hope that you will join us again soon.